Welcome to Women on the Verge of a Financial Breakthrough, where we're figuring out finance one dumb question at a time. I'm the dummy, Caitlin, and I'm a coach and a mediator in the Bay Area, and... I'm Sarah Glakis. I'm an investor, advisor, and founder of Black Barn Financial and the Austin Women's Investing Group, which you can find on Meetup. So when I met Sarah... Was it 2014? If you had told me that I would one day co-host a podcast about investing or personal finance, it would have been like telling me I would be doing it on like Middle Eastern scripture analysis from cave paintings, like uh, some (laughs) subject area that was so remote to my understanding of the world anything I had known up to that point. But I took her investing for beginners class and I'm catching up a little bit. So this podcast is your invitation to join me. Okay, before we get started, there's only one more episode in our first season. We want to cover so many things in our second season, like sustainable investing, crypto, whatever the hell that is, credit scores, life insurance, estate planning, and so many other topics with guest experts in these fields. But in order to make that happen, we need sponsors. So we need your help. If you could leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to this podcast and text it or email to like three women in your network or that you just met that you think could really be helped by getting some financial and investing knowledge, that would be such a help to us, okay? Thanks so much. Okay, Sarah, today is a fantasy that can turn into a problem. Let's see if that makes sense. The fantasy, getting a big chunk of money, like a pile of money at your feet that like we're all think like, yes, best case scenario, unexpected pile of money. But then quickly after the anxiety, what to do? I mean, I know what I would do is just like, I think I'm graduated from shoebox, but like keeping it into a savings account or something where I can look at the number regularly. (laughs) and feel really excited about it. But ever since meeting you, you've sort of ruined that fantasy of just having it in a savings account and feeling just super proud that I have that money. So what do, what's someone supposed to do if they, I'm assuming it's like inheritance. That would be the most usual thing. Or like selling a house or something where unexpectedly, or maybe it's expected, you end up with a chunk of money. And with I'll let you answer in a second, but I'm still talking. <laughs> <laughs> just just keep going. You got it. <laughs> well, why that makes me... Okay, so the easy answer is like, you should invest it. But that's this big chunk of money. And we know that on a day-to-day basis, the stock market goes up and down. And I know we're not supposed to be looking at it. But if I just put... in it on Monday, you can bet I'm looking on Tuesday just to be like, oh, goody for me. (laughs) And then it tanks. And I don't know if I'll recover from that. And I know the worst case scenario is that I take it all out because I've done this podcast with you. But I'm just curious, what is your advice? Is that what we just have to stomach and do? Like just put it all in there on Monday and then not look again for 15 years? Like what is the 
the financially savvy thing to do with that pile of money. I want to hear a little bit more about um, what you think. Like, how long do you think you would leave this windfall, like, in the bank, like, in a bank account so you could just admire it and <laughs> fantasize about it and make all these plans but not actually do anything? Like, how, do, how long do you think it would take you... Oh, forever. No, what you just said was exactly right. Like I'd put it in and be like, I'm going to be very deliberate and smart about the way that I invest this money. I'm going to come up with a perfect plan that's fail proof. So this will like double, triple, quadruple my money and look at what I can accomplish. And as it turns out, I will never ever be able to come up with a plan that's perfect. Like just the stakes are so high then that I'll be so overwhelmed and anxious about it that I'll do nothing. And then 15 years later, I'll meet someone like you that's like, God, if you run the numbers, you could have made like, let me get out my financial so, calculator and tell you what you could have had over the last 15 years. Yeah, a jerk like you would have just shamed oh, me. No. I am a jerk. I feel like the pressure to be perfect in that situation would overwhelm me. And like it might become the worst thing that had ever happened to me <laughs> getting that yeah, money. Yeah. Um I can't tell how normal I'm. I mean, I know enough people that they put off those decisions because they want to do the, quote, right thing with them. And I think you would agree with doing a right thing. But the problem is you don't wake up one morning most of the time just being like, today's the day. I figure it all out. I'm totally confident in my plan and I execute it. So what do we do instead? Yeah. I mean, I do think that step one is getting your bearings. So that like letting it sit in the bank account for some period of time is actually a really good idea. Uh, you know, everybody processes these windfall events in different ways. Um, and certainly if you've inherited money, you know, there's lots of emotional stuff that comes along with that. So I don't necessarily think that people need to rush into making, like making a plan or implementing their plan right away. Um, you know, I've seen people take six months, 12 months, sometimes 24 months or, or even longer to just, you know, process whatever has happened to process it and kind of reach a point where they feel like they're ready to move forward. I mean, because I would caution against rushing into something. Um, it's just, it's a recipe to be disappointed with the decision that you made. Um, and it's, I think it's a recipe to let other people assume agency of the types of decisions that you should be making. So I just want to kind of throw out there that it's okay to wait for some period of time to make a decision about some windfall amount that you receive. That is so nice of you. I thought you'd be a total (laughs) hard ass and be like, stop, stop feeling so much. Just get it in the market. But as you're talking, I realize the vulnerable position it puts you in for like A, giving it to someone someone's like brother-in-law who's like you heard is good with money and just being like oh my god will you man i'm totally overwhelmed often if it does come with an inheritance like there's a death just like you're saying there's a bunch of other things that you're processing at the same time so you might really just like jump to have someone else manage it for you and without like being in the mind space to really evaluate whether they're a good person for that job or aligned with what you would want And then also, like, 
you might be a little bit more uh, raw and vulnerable. And so your likelihood to like help people with that money or invest in something because you want to make someone else feel good or something, you might just be vulnerable to doing things with the money that you wouldn't in another state of mind. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. And that is such a good point is that like whatever, uh, when you receive a windfall, especially if it's an inheritance, um, you're not probably in any position to be making any type of commitment whatsoever when it comes to this money, right? Whether it's like giving it away, lavishing it on your kids or your your romantic interests or your spouse or whatever it is, you know, it's, um, it is just a really emotional time and you shouldn't make investing decisions with your emotions. And so just taking a step back and saying, I'm going to take six months and not make any decisions about this money, I think is a really smart thing to do uh, versus rushing into anything, you know, either on the, you know, trying to get it out of your hands as quickly as possible in whatever way that maybe that manifests itself. Um, I think it's a really smart idea to just take, just take as much time as you need to kind of gather yourself so that you're making decisions that are really, I don't know, that are as right as they possibly can be for you. Okay. Does that mean then you sit in paralysis waiting for the perfect decision for 10 years and that's okay? Like when does the the t- time out that you're like taking the time to let the emotions settle and be in your right mind? Like, are you waiting for a perfect plan? What are you waiting for? Like your right mind? Yes. Yes. But I'm in my right. I mean, let's put it in quotes in my right mind right now. And I would be totally <laughs> overwhelmed and a perfectionist in this crazy realm where I have like no reason to think I could do anything perfectly in it. Yeah. I think you're waiting for that moment where you are not overwhelmed, not completely overwhelmed. You might still be a little bit overwhelmed. So I think it's somewhere in between. There, I don't know, there's some sort of gray area, right, where I'm not totally overwhelmed anymore. And I know that I can't wait until something's perfect. I have to start moving forward. Okay, so what does that look like? And also, like, moving forward could be that, like, oh, you got a surprise, like, amount of money because, like, a, you know, remote aunt sold a business and you got part of it. So it might not be an emotional time for you. And so you're ready you're ready to get moving, but you're still freaked out by the volatility of the stock market, which as we know, is a feature, not a bug. We learned that from you, Sarah, on this podcast. So what what do you then do knowing that it's a feature, not a bug, but you have this bunch of money you don't wanna lose from Monday to Tuesday? Yeah, so are you jumping ahead to, all right, like, you've kind of made this general decision to invest for the long run, you want to get into the market, what do I do next? Oh, I didn't let you go to step two. I was just, I'm so eager to get in the market, Sarah. Okay, what's step two? (laughs) You're slowing me down. Okay. No, I mean, step two is information gathering, right? So it's when you talk to investment professionals or you listen to some awesome podcasts and you start getting a plan together. And hopefully that plan is something like, this is how I envision life, this is what I envision life being like for the next 10, 20, 30 years. These are the short-term things that I wanna do, these are the medium-term things I wanna do, and these are the long-term things that I wanna do. And assuming that you come up with some long-term goals, and for most people it's something like retirement or 
you know, whatever that looks like for people. Uh, that long-term piece is where like the stock market comes in, right? Or other other types of risky investments. Um, so, you know, figuring out of this windfall amount, how much is set aside for my future self, where I can take advantage of that compounding that we've talked about in past episodes, um, then it's go time, right? Where you have to figure out, okay, you know, I have $500,000 oh and my God. This, this is, is getting more even money. more exciting. I was thinking right. 50, you're 500. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm going 500. Yeah. Okay. This is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is more big. money than I've ever had. It's more money than um, I feel comfortable with, but I know that I don't want it to sit in cash. I know that I want it to grow uh, you know, over a long period of time. And so, you know, now how do you deploy that? You know, how do you get that into the market? That's your question, right? It is. And I guess I'm just so excited you gave me permission to be like, okay, I'm taking one really good trip first. Like that dividing the money into categories of like, you know, immediate. So, you know, pay the mortgage, blah, blah, blah. And then some medium term thing, like it's some big milestone event in my life next year. I'd love to take a great trip. But then like, let's think about retirement. Like how can I grow this money beyond those more um, short term and medium term needs? So then I might be working with less than the windfall, but I've like made a very conscious decision about like what I'm allowed to use right now and what I really need for the future and that could be because you're a little bit behind where you'd like to be in your retirement savings or you're like i was gonna live at this level in retirement but maybe i can live at like a high high penthouse level retirement you know <laughs> or like up. you know moving up in the elevator yeah <laughs> so what does that look like yeah um I mean, so once you basically have the investing plan, you kind of have two choices, right? On one extreme side of the spectrum is you take this $500,000 and you just chuck it in the market. You chuck it in the market on Monday and you walk away on Tuesday and you just let the market do what it does. So uh, usually what we call that is lump sum investing, where you take a lump sum of money and you invest it all at once. Um, there's some evidence to show uh, Vanguard did a white paper on this. You could probably Google Vanguard white paper lump sum investing. Um, they looked at you know all these different time periods and found that most of the time, lump sum investing is actually the right choice financially, where you just take this whole big chunk of money and you plop it in the market. And because the stock market tends to go up, that would give you, in most cases, a, a higher financial uh, reward, if that makes sense. How do you feel about that option, though? I feel like it's what I expected you to say, because you keep saying we're not allowed to look at the stock, like put your money in, but don't look, just turn away, and then you can come back in like 10, 20, 30 years. So I feel like it's what I expected you to say. Now, whether or not I could actually do it because of knowing the volatility of the market, like 
I would have to turn off all news, like the lead up for that day when I press the button or make the call or whatever, it would be like a serious cocoon event where I'm just like, la, 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 la. I'm just doing it. It would be a mind over matter thing. So I guess that's what you're giving me the confidence to do. I know that the general trend of the market is upward and that if I have a longer time horizon, I will generate the benefits of that no matter what the daily fluctuations are. That said, that's what I say to get an A in your class. <laughs> what I'm thinking is, are you fucking kidding me? I put that $500,000 in and the next day it's down to $430,000. Like, I I will never unknow that. And yep. in 10 years, I won't remember like, oh, I put in 500,000 and today I have 750. I'll remember I lost $70,000 in one day. What, what would it have been like if I had invested in Tuesday instead of on Monday? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so no one actually does lump sum investing as far as I can tell, <laughs> right? For that exact reason. Like we're all too chicken and it doesn't matter like if the odds are in your favor or not. Uh, nobody really does that. So on the other side of the spectrum. Oh, my um, God. I passed that test. You like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm picked, just as crazy as everybody else. That's the test that. Yeah. Like, you, okay. you picked what you picked what everybody <laughs> picked, which is not that. Please okay. do not just dump all of my money in the stock market on Monday, right. please. Right. Uh, so the other way is something called uh, dollar cost averaging. So this is actually something that if you contribute to a um, a 401k or some sort of employer-sponsored plan, you're already doing this. Um, it's the idea that you, instead of investing all at once, you break up your contributions into smaller chunks and you invest slowly over time. So really what you're, what you're really doing is you are, you're deferring taking risk, you're deferring it into the future, right? Instead of taking all the risk today, you're uh, kind of layering in to the stock market and to that riskiness over time. Okay, wait, break down the, what is it called again? I know you've said dollar cost averaging. Okay, I get $500,000. I'm ready to do something with $500,000 on January 1st. What is dollar, like lump sum is January 1st. I log into Vanguard and I push the button and it buys the stocks I want or the index fund that I want dollar cost averaging, what does that look like on January 1st? Yeah, so maybe it's something like I'm going to take $10,000 and invest it every week for 50 weeks. Oh. And and no matter what, I, no matter if the market's up or the market's down, I'm going to invest $10,000 every week. And it's a schedule. And so it's it's meant to be a system. First of all, it's a system to kind of get over the, I don't know, the, the, the shock of dumping all of your money into the stock market at one time, kind okay. of like we talked about. Um, and the other benefit is that if you imagine this $10,000 that you're putting into the market periodically, the market's going up and the market's going down from week to week. With that $10,000, if the price of stocks goes up, you buy fewer shares with your $10,000, right? Okay. Yeah. And if the stock market goes down, you buy more shares with your $10,000. Oh, okay. So 
over time, it allows you to potentially, you know, take advantage of stock market volatility in order to purchase more shares than maybe you otherwise would have had you done the lump sum investing. Okay. Wait, let me get this because I, okay, you kind of break even in a way because you absorb fewer of the losses and you, but you can take advantage of more of the gains because your dollars are stronger when the market is lower. So that seems like an obvious reason to do it. Like you're less at risk each time with smaller amounts of money. But you said Vanguard shows in most cases lump sum is actually better because in that case, that whole lump of money would be doing stuff for a whole year instead of this drip, drip, drip over the year. Exactly, exactly. Most of the time, the stock market goes up over a one-year time period. So you would have had your whole, the entire $500,000 growing at 7% or whatever uh, the entire year instead of having, if you do it lump sum investing, your first $10,000 gets going, and then your second $10,000 gets going, and then your third $10,000 gets going. So each little piece that you're putting into the market doesn't have an entire year to grow. It would be getting a delayed start because you haven't put it into the market. So which might offset that big loss, this potential big loss you might face in those first few days where you're watching attentively to see, you know, am I getting rich quick yet? And you notice, in fact, you're not getting rich quick, you are losing money. But that in two weeks and three weeks and four weeks, that huge like continent of money then starts to pick up some steam. And you can't compensate for the steam Oh my God, this is a crazy metaphor. A $500,000 <laughs> builds up with drip, drip, drip of 10000 over a year-long period. Yeah. I mean, I would say the benefit of dollar cost averaging in this case over lump sum investing, the benefit is behavioral, right? It's that most people can't tolerate the idea of seeing a huge dollar loss in the first few weeks or months of investing. And so if if you are like most people, then that's where dollar cost averaging comes in. And it feels a little bit more like a system. It's a little bit more like building a habit or working a muscle. Yeah. And it feels like the stakes are lower. I mean, because they are. The stakes are lower. You're mitigating some risk, but you know, there's a chance that you'll you'll give up you'll give up returns over that first year. But for most people, it's worth it, right? Like it just gives you a chance to get in the market, get your feet wet and not get completely overwhelmed by, I mean, something like we're experiencing right now. Oh I mean, God. this is the end of February, 2022. And it's been like a shit show for lack of a better term in the stock market. And so if you are dollar cost averaging, you would maybe have put in what? Forty or $50,000 of your $500,000 this year so far, you would have been buying at lower and lower prices going into the end of this month, and you'd probably still feel pretty good about having $450,000 in cash. God, I would just also, I mean, there's no way to get around this psychological 
stories that would like, oh, why didn't I put all that money on that low day? You see totally. that low day in retrospect? Like, God, I should have just put the rest of it in that day. Okay, that yeah. I'm, I love, I, I never thought about 401ks that way, but I get it. Well, and most of us are too dependent on our uh, paychecks to just be like, oh, I'll just put 12000 in my 401k at the end of the year instead of like a little bit monthly breaking that down. So I get that you're saying that's like usual, that's the common um, sort of manifestation of dollar cost averaging is the way that we contribute to our retirement accounts. That's that's exactly what we're doing. But I think of that way as the limitation is how much money we have available at any given time to put into those accounts. That's totally true, yes. And in this case, we have all the money available, but knowing our human psychology, have to manage ourselves in a way. So the obvious question here, Sarah, if I gave you, I mean, this is too hypothetical. Okay, if you inherited $500,000 tomorrow, would you do the lump sum or would you do dollar cost averaging? I don't even want to say this actually this actually did happen somewhat recently and I lump summed it. I just I I chucked it all in on one day and Why just didn't walk, you walked away. Why didn't Why didn't I I don't because I feel like my I feel like my <laughs> my risk tolerance and understanding of risk um is so different from the way most people view it that I don't want to seem like a bad influence on people. Whoa, 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 whoa. But okay, I appreciate that. I only want to hang out with positive influences, but what it's because of your your knowledge that you're doing that. Like you don't think of it as like bringing it to the poker table. You have concrete evidence that that is a solid way to invest and so you do it. You're putting your money where Oh my God, you're putting your money where your mouth is. Literally, that is the only time I can use that expression in a literal way. Correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's how I do it. I also, um, yeah, I, I spend so much time managing other people's money uh, and I always put mine aside. And so I don't want to, I don't want to lose track of my system. Like I don't have... I don't necessarily have time to implement my own system because I'm implementing other people's systems. So the way just to um, not have it take up any additional bandwidth in my mind is just to do it, right? There's nothing to it but to do it. Like, just put it in there and I'm coming back in 20 years and I have never regretted that. Oh my God, you have a slogan for it. Well, it makes me love you even more that you're sheepish about it because you still want to identify with the common woman who is worried about doing that. So you don't want to identify yourself as part of like the intellectual investing elite. But of course, you know, that's what you do. So you really understand it, but you are able to get over those psychological barriers and worries and fear. Some because of practical reasons, like you don't want to lose out on investing just because you've lost track of your system because of your day job. And so it's just like, it's a way to make sure it gets done by doing a lump sum in this case. But also because you are so aware of the the ways that our psychology make things especially in the investing world, seem riskier than they are. They amplify some risks 
and de-emphasize others that might be more important. Like the risk seem for me of investing at all is that I would lose that 70,000. Where the actual risk is waiting so long that that 500,000 stays pretty close to 500,000 instead of doubling, quadrupling, tripling, and then I don't have as much as I need when I retire. Am I getting that right? Yeah, man, you make me sound so rational. You're and like so, so smart. Yeah. <laughs> But that's what this is all about, right? Especially, I feel like this comes up for us again and again that what we, the common person, many women who never got an opportunity for this kind of education is we view risk as these things that happen in the short term. I mean, it's sort of like chronic health things or you know, you're worried about flying in an airplane, but actually rates for car accidents are higher. Just like what we see in front of us, what we're gonna experience in the next 24 hours, the next week and the next month is much more real to us than the longer term horizon. I feel like this is a common theme in this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I, and just I think just in uh, my my work and this podcast and the classes that I teach, I I have almost the opposite view. Like anything related to money, I'm always pushing it out five or ten years. So the short term is only important in that I need to string a bunch of short terms together to get to the long term. Um, I mean, and, and I don't, you know, I do have money set aside for my short-term needs, right? So it's we've not... talked about your high high yield <laughs> savings accounts. That's right. <laughs> oh man, my poor high yield savings accounts. Okay, so it, Sarah. It... Oh. I this connects to something that I feel like we've skirted around. We've talked about a little bit, but like how to do a personal risk assessment, and I feel like we need a Cosmo quiz for this, and we have not made that, but. You know, we can say to people, just like get over yourself, like go into the market, go full fledged, go like Warren Buffett tells his wife, 90% stocks, 10% bonds, use only index funds, set it, forget it, never look. Like if every single person listening just followed that advice, I feel having no expertise in this area (laughs) (laughs) that we would be giving solid financial guidelines for people to consider for building their financial futures. So I feel like when someone's deciding how they're going to invest, like we even did it on that Schwab uh, retirement calculator, like what's your level, what's your risk tolerance? What level of risk are you willing to enter the market in? And so we've talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious where you think people should start is it in terms of their psychology? Is it their age? Is it their what? Like, how do people figure out what their risk tolerance is? Yeah, I think it's absolutely starting with um, your psychology. And nothing else matters other than psychology when you're an investor. Your age doesn't matter. Well, you know, it does matter. But um, I think you have to lead with your psychology. Um, and I found what I found is the easiest way for people to envision what their actual risk tolerance is. is kind of like what you talked about at the very beginning. Uh, take the amount of money that you're investing and then tell me how far you could see it fall before you get very upset um, or before you want to pull out of the market. And that allows people to envision like what is a very real scenario. Like if you have $500,000, how far could you see it fall before like you don't want to do this anymore and you pull all your money out and you 
take your money and go home. And for every person, that's a different number. For some people, they might say, well, I don't want to lose any of it. Like, okay, that's going to lead you to a certain set of investments that you can tolerate, right? And some people will say, well, you know, it's not my money anyway. I don't feel like it's mine. So if I lost it all, it wouldn't really bother me. Like, I just feel like it's like monopoly money or play money. And so that's a really different risk tolerance. And most people fall somewhere in between, right? Like, okay, if you invested $500,000 and you lost $50,000, that's only 10%. Uh, how much does that affect you? Do you just, you know, do you understand that that's probably going to happen? And so you're ready for it and it doesn't really bother you? Or is it like a worst case scenario where you're going to feel like you did something wrong or your advisor did something wrong or the market did something wrong? Um, you know, I think that's the most important number for people to know is when you think about the money you're investing, how far, like, what is your floor? I'm sort of shocked that you're saying this. I'm always shocked by you. I thought <laughs> you would be like, because what if we reverse that question? Like, how much money do you want to make from it? to earn from this? And then they choose like $5,000, $10,000, you know, a million dollars. And that that then could set people's risk tolerance. Like, oh, okay, you want to make all that money? Great. You have a very high risk tolerance then. And you would be happy just to get another $5,000 from it? Cool. Then you're, you have a very low risk tolerance. What's the difference between asking the question those two ways? Um, people always underestimate uh, how much pain they'll feel with a loss. So there's this whole, like, there's all these studies around um, loss aversion that, and that the pain of experiencing a loss is greater than the pleasure of experiencing a gain. Um, but you don't really know that until it's happening, right? So, oh my gosh, what is that? There's this famous Mike Tyson quote. That Clearly goes something we have a lot of, I have so many Mike Tyson quotes at my fingertips. I know. This is, you're going to know this one. This one's your favorite as well as mine, I'm sure, which is um, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? So that's like what, you know, that's what people are going through right now. Again, this is February 2022. Um, the NASDAQ came down 20% and a lot of people are invested in companies that are in the NASDAQ. Um, the S&P 500 is down 10%. There's, you know, war in Ukraine. Nobody knows what's going on. Um, everything is uh, seems very messy. And this is the time when people realize that they overestimated how much risk they were comfortable with, but they didn't realize it until it happened. And then it's too late. So um, it's really important to really think through how much you can handle and that if that eventuality happens, what are you going to do? Well, isn't there the other question, though, like you're telling me, you're asking me how much I can handle losing, but you're also telling me don't look. And so I might be able to follow your, inst like there are two different answers for me. Like, I don't want to lose a dollar is the first answer. <laughs> but the second answer is, yeah, I can follow your rule to not look. So I'm willing to not look in order to not test what my risk tolerance is because of this leap of faith that I am both willing to make but feel like I have to make to be able to retire. And that like, if I sign up for the program, 
I have to not look. Yeah. I love that. I mean, because that's going back to the other side where how important is it for you to take risk, uh, hopefully get the expected rate of return that you're hoping for, grow your money and end up with less risk in the future. If you know that that's important, but it doesn't, it's not your preference to take any risk, um, then what you said is like, it's a, it's a strategy that works for a lot of people, which is just that I would rather not do this, but I don't have a choice. So I'm going to trust the process. I'm going to go about my day. I'm not going to look at it. When the headlines are bad, I'm especially not going to look at it because I know this is money for 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And I, I know or expect that things will be really different then than what they are now. So that's like exactly a strategy that a lot of people have to use. It's it's just kind of, you know, putting it in the time capsule and not digging it up until 20 years down the road. And that is very effective for a lot of people. I'm also trying to tie this to our experiences because we've all lost money, right? Like there's just some, you know, we bought one thing. I don't know, even on a daily basis on Amazon, you buy something one day and then it's like $10 cheaper the next or something. Like we've all had these like short-term losses where like shit or in this housing market, tons of people, you know, but we haven't all experienced the gains from the stock market in any significant way. So that is... I say it again and again, a leap of faith. So it's not just like we're dummies. We don't remember. We only remember the losses. We don't remember the gains. It's that we haven't had a long enough time horizon or, you know, that's not a fresh enough experience. It's not over yet for us to really embody that win. And so it's yet another leap of faith. Like it is a theoretical beneficial outcome we are banking on rather than like the hard lived experience of loss and how we know what that feels like. Yeah, I mean, and I'll say like most um, most companies where you're doing your investing, so if it's, you know, TD Ameritrade or Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard, they can show you the chart that over time shows you the difference between the money you put in and the growth of the investments. And it looks like um, like alligator jaws, like pulling apart, right? And if you if you just give it five years, which most of us can like sign up for, like okay, we can do something for five years. That's usually enough time to be able to see that benefit that you're talking about, and um, just really like understand all the hard times you have to get through in the market in order to get to five years out. And really, like, hopefully for all of us, that's enough time to appreciate the benefit of of doing this, of taking that leap of faith. But then it becomes less of a leap of faith and more of a trend, right? Like, oh, this is a trend that I'm a part of, not some sort of, you know, prayer that I'm saying and hoping that everything works out. It's like, oh, yeah, like, it did work. It wasn't pleasant all the time, and it didn't go straight up. And even if you look over the last five years, right? Like we had a 20% uh, drawdown in the stock market at the end of 2018. We had 34% in March of 2020. And we're in the middle of a pullback right now, right? You guys, That's like she's every- not reading anything. She just knows this off the top of her head. <laughs> so amazing. 
it's I mean, it's this is my life. Right. You know, it's it's telling people that, hey, that's every two years so far, like in these last you know, five or six years, we've gone through this and we're going to keep going through it. But I can also show people how much the market has grown over those five or six years. Like, you know, it's just, it's the, the trade-off. Okay. So let's talk about the two extremes. The people that are like balls to the wall. I know this is for women, but I'm just going to use that expression. I'm going to go high risk, like full in high risk. You either have a personality type that's just like, I'm in it for the gamble, whatever, even though we're saying it's not a gamble, but, um, or you can follow my rule from Sarah, which is just don't look, like be super high risk. And then within index funds, I'm not saying high risk anything else. Like I'm very vanilla. This is not some sort of like crypto, (laughs) whatever. We'll deal with that later, but like, High 90% stocks. I'm talking just in terms of ratios. Like I'm going to go high risk, which means a high ratio of stocks to bonds with the caveat that I'm not going to look. I'm not going to check on it because it's not like I'm bulletproof. I very much know I will absorb those losses and feel sad and remember them forever and blame Sarah. So that (laughs) is like, it seems like the two options for high risk or like I really undersaved and so I have no choice like the $40,000 I have is not going to serve me for my retirement so they need it needs to go into high risk now the low risk will have to be people that what that like can't obey that rule who are at biggest risk for taking their money out when the market goes low and therefore kind of losing all of that momentum yeah I mean it's it's really tricky it's like um being a really conservative investor is perfect for people who already have a lot of money. Oh. And don't need any more. So that's awesome for those people who are in that situation, right? right. Um, for, for people who are very conservative and don't have enough to support the lifestyle they expect after they're done working, um, it's, it's tough out there, right? There's... Um, as you know from our high yield savings account conversation, you're not going to get a lot of money in a high yield savings account or CDs. That's probably never going to happen again. And so uh, you have to figure out other ways to get some sort of return. For some people, um, that's like if you own your home, that can sometimes make up for it, right? Because like, if you buy a house and you pay the mortgage, part of that mortgage payment is forced savings. And then if the real estate goes up in value, that that can be a that's a pretty conservative investment. Um, but it just it gets really it gets really tricky to for people who really are conservative. There's just not a ton of good options. Like um, some part has to be in something like the stock market, and so you have to. I don't know. It's 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 very challenging. I would say that's probably like the hardest. Uh, the hardest situation for someone who does what I do is trying to figure out how to get conservative investors enough growth um, in a way that they can tolerate so that they'll have enough money when they retire. And no matter what, the worst case scenario I'm taking from you is investing your money, watching it, 
and then reacting to the lows by not just buying more because then you're buying low, but taking your money out because of your fear that it will go lower and then missing the eventual rebound. Is that is that where we get really in a dangerous territory with our risk tolerance? Like we think it's higher, so we go into the market, but then we're watching way too closely and that we have a fear reaction, which then not only makes us lose money, but like by an order of magnitude larger than it would be if we just didn't look and didn't take the money out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that happens to people all the time. Um, you buy high and sell low. And I, and I totally get it. You know, people are trying to, they're trying to thread the needle where market's going down, they jump out with the idea that they're going to jump back in when the market goes even lower. They're going to find some new low to get in oh, at. Okay. And then they're going to make all, they're going to make the money back. But it's nearly impossible to do. I don't know if I've ever met, I mean, I haven't ever personally met or met anyone who knows anyone who has successfully <laughs> been able to do that. Right. Because so, they'd be a gazillionaire. I mean, let's right. talk to Warren Buffett. We'll have him on next season, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's the whole point is it's totally unpredictable. Right. So even it, if you have those amazing, you know, intentions, executing them is impossible. Right. They call it, you know, they call it a whipsaw, right? That you get whipsawed in the market, especially one like now that's very headline driven uh, with, you know, news of war. It's, you know, terrifying. It's terrifying to just be in the world and then to be an investor in the world. And so um, the market reacts in, it almost always reacts in a different way than you expect it to. Uh, which is why it's so fun and terrifying <laughs> and also why you get the higher rates of return for being in it. Like that's why you get the higher rates of return is because it's- That's you know, your reward. It's volatile. That's your reward. Heartburn. Okay. Yeah. So, so you just have to you just have to tolerate it. If you're jumping in and out or reacting to every little thing in the market, I, I just have a hard time believing you're ever going to make any money. So okay. it's just better. It's better to ignore it and just let it do its thing. Give it five years. I love that this connects back to the lump sum where you just and that like the more headlines you hear about the mark or like the more the financial markets are in the news, the less you should listen. Like you should understand because it's a huge driving force of the way things happen in the political world and the geopolitical world. And of course, in people's like lived realities, but in terms of your personal investing that you have to tune it out if you're going to be high risk. And that's all connected with like being a lump sum investor that we all aspire to, like Sarah. <laughs> I mean, I'm down from my lump sum investment that I made at the end of last year. So let's all just wait, take it wait, with wait. a grain of salt. Let's edit that part out. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting just like the rest of you. I am patient. Give me five years, give me 10 years, and then we'll do a We'll do a podcast check-in in 10 years to see how my lump sum investing did. And she'll be like, so guys. Yeah, I yeah, of course you have to be in the market like everybody else. Or you could be totally cavalier about all of it and just like, oh, yeah, do that. What's the big deal? But you, you've got skin in the game. I've got all my skin in the game. All the skins in the game. <laughs> That's a different <laughs> podcast. Aww, that sounds really gross. <laughs> Okay, Sarah, what is one thing a woman on the verge of a financial breakthrough can do today 
to push forward her financial future? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the questions that I get from people all the time is, well, how are my investments doing? Or how am I doing as an investor? So the way you find that out is by logging into your accounts and almost every custodian or bank or institution that you'll have accounts with will have something called your personal rate of return. And it might be under like the performance tab or the performance link in your accounts. And that's where they should be able to tell you how your investments have performed over the last one year, five years, 10 years. Um, And I like checking in on this just periodically so that you can get an idea of how your investments are doing. Um, What we really want to see is over time, uh, those alligator jaws opening up between the amount of money that you've invested and the value of the accounts over time. Uh, Because that's why we're investing. We're trying to have our investments do as much work as possible so that uh, we can grow our wealth over time. So looking at that over long periods of time can just show you why you're doing what you're doing. And if when you look for that performance number, you find that it's not really what you expected or you were hoping for higher performance numbers, uh, it'll give you a chance to course correct. Maybe you're in a fund that's not as aggressive as you thought it was going to be, or maybe your asset allocation needs to change, or maybe your risk tolerance has changed. Maybe five years ago when you started investing, you were pretty conservative. And now that you know more, you're ready to kick it up a notch. So going and looking at that number and your accounts, I think will give you a lot of good information uh, to make decisions going forward. Okay, what I love about this is just what we're talking about is that we all have experiences with the losses and I feel like we really need to savor the wins and get like real reminders of the wins that we've either like already experienced or could experience. So this seems like such a great way to get that snapshot, like give yourself the moment for the endorphins to wash through the cells of your body to have this be like a full-bodied pleasure experience of (laughs) seeing your gains in the market. But it's funny too, because we're saying like, don't check, don't check. And then today we're like, so you should check. So this is different (laughs) than like, where is the stock market today? It's looking at a trend over time from the time that you started. And let me just make sure I understand the alligator, the crocodile jaws, the bottom jaw is the money you've put in and the top one is how much it's grown like correct what the balance actual balance is now and so all that area in between is like how you've taken that little amount of money and made it a bigger amount of money and so like just some personal pride and satisfaction in that exactly you got it but don't then take all your money out of the market if it's not where you thought it would be or if it scares you you then can take some time to consider how to rearrange the ratio of your investments so if you i think when i started i was at 40 percent bonds and 60 percent stocks because that just felt just as risky as i could tolerate and then now i'm like 90 10. so you i think that's what you're talking about course correcting is that then you can go in and if you if this is all like blah 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 call them 
just pick up the phone and call and be like, oh, I looked at my alligator jaws or how do I find my alligator jaws? And they will explain that to you and you say, okay, wait, I want to change it. So my ratio is 90 to 10. They can't tell you what to invest in, but of course that you can say, well, someone, i.e. us, told you index funds um, in stocks and bonds. And so you can go from there. We need to experience the successes. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Bye. Hey, do you have any dumb questions about finance or investing? Send them to us at our website, womenontheverge.com. Hey, so many thank yous to Kelly West, a woman on the verge in her own right, who took the amazing photos for our album art and website, helped with our website design, music, audio editing, cheerleading, mental health, everything. Emily Kleinsorgi, our stylist that did our hair and makeup for our photos from Lucy Skyrocket. Lauren Gross and Taylor Gross, who helped us with our graphic design. And our music is by Bad Bad Hats and Devmo. If your partner is making you ask for money, giving you an allowance, taking your money, or not letting you know about or have access to family income, this could be economic abuse. Learn more at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-SAFE. So Sarah, because you're a financial professional, we have to read a disclaimer for this podcast. I would actually really love it if you could read the disclaimer in your best legal voice. Okay, doing it. This podcast contains general information that is not suitable for everyone. The information contained herein should not be construed as personalized investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. There is no guarantee that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast will come to pass. Investing in the stock market involves gains and losses and may not be suitable for all investors. Information presented herein is subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or sell any security. I know the first thing you notice is that I'm covered in gold. The trip of the wrist, it can turn a hot bitch cold. To get what you want in life, girl, you gotta be bold. Now I'm a diary and I know.